We're going to start with verse 32 of Mark chapter 10, and we're just going to dive right in and then kind of play catch me up, establishing a little context. Verse 32, now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Now, the journey that we're catching the tail end of is a journey that began back in Mark chapter 9 in the northernmost region of Israel, an area around Caesarea Philippi. An amazing event took place, the Mount of Transfiguration. And from that moment, Jesus begins a direct and deliberate journey south to Jerusalem. And his journey is direct and deliberate. Jesus is moving with a purpose because he wants to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. So he makes his way from the north down to the region of Galilee. He makes his way across the northwestern rim, finding himself at his headquarters there in Capernaum. Stays the night. We're given a few lessons that take place while Jesus is staying there. He departs. He's got the disciples and a multitude of Jews pilgriming from Galilee to Jerusalem, continuing around the Sea of Galilee, now working their way down the Jordan River Valley. There's a crowd. Jesus is making his way. Lots of things occur. Teaching, the rich young ruler, all kinds of stories are occurring while Jesus is making his descent down the Jordan River Valley. Ultimately, Jesus will, from the Dead Sea, progress up to Jerusalem. And Mark seems to indicate that this is, this is where we are. That the language here is indicating that now Jesus, he's left Galilee. He's now leaving the Jordan and he's going to make his way up to Jerusalem, this final leg. Going up to Jerusalem was not abnormal. No matter which direction you came to Jerusalem, you were always going up. If you were coming from the Mediterranean, you were going up. Jerusalem being situated in a mountain range, the Judean mountain range. So at higher elevation, above sea level, you're trekking up to Jerusalem. From the Mediterranean, Jerusalem was elevated at 2,490 feet. But Jesus is not coming from the Mediterranean. He's coming from the Dead Sea, which means that this journey, though only 20 miles, is treacherous. It is a very difficult climb. And let me explain. Though Jerusalem might be situated 2,490 feet above sea level, the Dead Sea is situated 1,384 feet below sea level, meaning that Jerusalem is about a 3,800 feet incline, 20 miles from where Jesus begins to the destination. So this is a difficult pathway, a difficult, treacherous journey. To give you some context of these elevations, Stone Mountain has an elevation of 1,686 feet, and I can get to about halfway before I quit. Lookout Mountain there in Tennessee has an elevation of 2,393 feet. It's a good 1,000 feet plus above even lookout. And so this is quite a journey. And Jesus is with still a multitude. He's with the 12. But Mark includes another detail that's interesting. Another detail that you should note. We're told here that Jesus now, he's the entire journey, he's been with the disciples. 
He's been with the multitude, but at this moment, as he turns from the Jordan to head to Jerusalem, Mark says that he goes before them, that Jesus gets out ahead of them, that there is now a quickness to his step. There's a, uh, a focus to his demeanor, that he's not waiting around anymore. Like he gets out in front. You know, it, it's, it's really annoying when you're walking with someone and they're out in front and like you're just doing everything you can to try to keep up. This is what's going on. Jesus is out in front. Everyone else is behind. And something's different about his demeanor. Because we're told that they looked at Jesus and they're amazed. Are they like, man, Jesus is a pretty strong guy. Look at how fast he's climbing that hill. No, because we're told that they were also afraid. Jesus has Jerusalem and his crosshairs. And what will take place at Jerusalem? Jesus will die for the sins of the world. And in my mind, as I'm seeing this scene, it's awesome. Because Jesus, there is purpose with every step. There is a focus, an intentness of his eyes. Something different that it freaks out the disciples, that they're afraid. And I see Jesus kind of like as a king making his way to Jerusalem, and very possibly the disciples are also thinking this, that this is, he's now going to do something amazing, to do something awesome, to do something incredible, that Jesus as a king is heading to his capital city to take it back. But it wasn't from the Romans. Jesus was going to take back the souls of men who had been marred by sin. And he's got a focus, a determination, that they were afraid. Now, let me, on a side note, encourage you in this regard. If Jesus is leading you someplace, if Jesus is leading you, and you can see in, in the distance, you can see on the horizon that where Jesus is leading you it is not going to be an easy road, that the destination or the stops on the journey won't be simple. As a matter of fact, could be very complicated. If Jesus is leading you and you're following your king, no matter where he leads, there's no need to be afraid. Because you know the truth is, is that many of us, are following Jesus, and we look ahead and we know that following Jesus is going to cost us something. We know that there are not peaceful days in our immediate future, but conflict and disappointment. Hey, the road that Jesus leads us on is not the easiest road. As a matter of fact, it's called narrow. It's a difficult path. And these disciples were afraid, but may I encourage you, friend, to not be afraid. When Jesus is leading and you're following, may you trust and rest that he will never lead us into a place that he won't sustain us. We'll leave more to that to one of our B-sides. We're told the second half of verse 32 that Jesus took the 12 aside again. And we're told that he began to tell them the things that would happen to him saying, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. 
and the third day he will rise again. Now, you should note something concerning the difference between a prediction and a prophecy. Because what we find here is not a prediction. Jesus is not predicting what's on the horizon. He's not predicting what's coming. Jesus is prophesying. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. Let let me read the difference between a prediction versus a prophecy from a, a noteworthy scholar. He says this, The general purpose of a prophecy and a prediction is the same, to tell what will happen in the future. However, their source of authority for this information is very different. Prophecy relies on the authority of God-given information and supernatural uh, revelation. True prophecy is therefore never wrong because it carries the authority of God, his truth and character. On the other hand, a prediction is based on man's ability to determine what may happen in the future. Predictions are sometimes right, often wrong, because it depends on man's limited prognostication ability. Prediction can be wrong because it's based on your ability to process information and rationalize the best possible outcome. But this is not what Jesus is doing. Look back at the words that Jesus uses. He's saying what's about to occur with complete and total certitude, isn't he? Look, he says, the Son of Man will be betrayed. They will condemn and deliver him. They will mock and scourge and spit and kill him. And he will rise again. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind what is awaiting him in Jerusalem. There's no hesitation that these things could possibly happen. They might occur. No, Jesus is noting with certainty that this is his destiny and this is his fate. Now this, by the way, is the third occasion that Jesus utters such a prophecy. Back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, we noted the first time that Jesus began to teach the disciples these things. As a matter of fact, Mark says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. The second occasion is in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, when Jesus basically reiterates what he's already said with one small detail. He says that the Son of Man is being betrayed. At that point, there is an active plot within the heart of Judas to betray, to sell out Jesus. But this third prophecy... It includes more details than the previous two. Some incredible details. First, note that Jesus said that the Jewish leaders would condemn him to death. But were they able to put him to death? No. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that they would condemn him to death, but they would have to deliver him to the Gentiles or the Romans so that they could put him to death. Josephus tells us, a Jewish historian, that 20 years before this event, before Jesus makes his ascent there to Jerusalem, that in response to the constant rebellion that was happening within the region, that the Romans revoked the Jews' ability to sentence people to death. They revoked the Jews' ability to enact the death penalty. 
Now, this was a big deal. The Romans often would allow their conquering people groups to operate and to govern themselves. And for years, they were allowed to sentence their own to death. But the Romans removed this option, and this caused quite a stir in the conventional religious thought process. And let me explain why. Back in Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob is lying there on his deathbed, he's going around the boys and he's prophesying certain things about each son and their descendants. And he gets to Judah. And Jacob makes a fascinating comment. He says that the scepter would not depart from Judah till Shiloh had come or the Messiah had come. And this was a problem for the conventional thought process, the religious opinion of the day, because though they had been stripped of so many rights of governance, going back to the Babylonians and the Assyrians before that, and then the Greeks and now the Romans, they had been limited in their ability to self-govern, but they had always been allowed to enact the death penalty, to sentence their own to death. And thus they, they saw it, that though we are a, a people a conquered people. We have this ability, so we still have an element of self-rule, which means the scepter is still in Judah, which means we can still be excited about the Messiah. But when this was removed 20 years beforehand, they all freak out. Why? Because there's no Messiah. Has God abandoned us? And that was a popular opinion during this time, that God was done with the Jews, that he was done with Israel that they were just like everyone else at this point. The irony is at this point, Jesus is a little over 30 years old, isn't he? Which means that the prophecy had been fulfilled, correct? If 20 years before this was removed, Shiloh had come. They just didn't realize he was a middle schooler in Nazareth learning a trade. Never harp on middle schoolers. You have no idea who those people will be. Now, I have two observations from this passage because Jesus also tells us with detail, okay, the Jews would deliver him to the Romans, but they would mock him and scourge him, spit on him. That's, that's detailed. Kill him. I mean, that's kind of ominous, right? I mean, the fate, and you're Jesus, don't forget, lockstep determination heading to Jerusalem. Knowing these things are coming. What does it tell me? First, it tells me that Jesus is in total control. That, that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and his life won't be taken from him. Jesus will willingly surrender himself. That nothing will happen this next week that is out of Jesus' control. That Jesus has everything together. And though the disciples might think that things are out of control, Jesus is controlling it all. Even to the point that as he's on the cross, he could have called down angels from heaven. But he didn't. That Jesus was in control. He knows what's awaiting him in Jerusalem. But here's the other thing. My other observation is that even knowing his fate, Jesus is still moving towards Jerusalem with resoluteness to the point that it causes awe and fear in the disciples. He knows this is his fate, but he's going there with a determination. Why? Because he loves you. That Jesus has you on his mind and he has you on his heart. 
And he knows that the only way he can have a relationship with you is to fulfill what awaits him in Jerusalem. And though that that would be painful and embarrassing and difficult, he moves with resoluteness because it's the only way that you could have access to the Father. To me, that makes him so worthy of my praise and my worship and my devotion. Now Luke's account reiterates that even at this point, Mark kind of just continues, but Luke tells us that at this point, the disciples are still clueless. Like Jesus for the third time has been banging it into their heads, what's coming, and they still are morons. They're not getting it in one ear, out the other. And you can't help but think, like, how can these guys be that dense that they couldn't listen, that they couldn't hear? Now, though we're not told, I think when it's all said and done, Jesus is being about as simplistic as he can, right, about what's coming. But that truth was in direct contradiction to what they were really wanting from Jesus, Because they were wanting, like, we're going to kick out the Romans, we're going to lead a revolution, the kingdom is coming, and we'll see how this plays itself out. So they're wanting Jesus to do A in Jerusalem. Jesus is making it clear, B, as simple as it can be. And they're not getting it. Why? Because I have found that often when I'm wanting A from Jesus and he's saying B, I will do whatever I can to not hear it. (laughs) Have you ever found yourself in the same situation? As a matter of fact, we often find that when things are simple, and Jesus is pretty simple, not complicated. When things are simple and we don't want to hear it, you know our way of working around it is we overcomplicate it. We overthink it. We like to argue. We like to miss the forest through the trees. The disciples, they overcomplicated what Jesus was saying to them simply. May you not fall prey to the same trap. We'll leave a little more to that to our B-sides. Verse 35, then James and John. James and John. I like James and John. The sons of Zebedee. They came to Jesus saying, <laughs> now that's kind of specific. James and John's the sons of Zebedee. Like why, why would we give that, why would we get that detail? Don't forget how we're getting the story, right? We're getting the story from Mark, who's getting the story from whom? Peter. And what we're going to find is that Peter, Peter has open mouth, inserted foot, and swallowed it to the kneecap multiple times. Like, like Peter has been a fool over and over and over and over again. He's gotten his fair share. And I think in my mind, like he's just wanting to make sure you know as the reader that he's not the only idiot in the group. Like, that there's James and John, and just in case you confuse who they are, the sons of Zebedee. Thank you for that detail, Peter. Just so you know, I'm not the only idiot in the group. They came to Jesus, and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, that's quite a request. Well, what would you like? It doesn't matter. You just first agree. Like, Just agree that whatever we ask, you'll say yes to. That's what they're saying. Now, look at how Jesus deals with them. He says to them, okay, what do you want? And they said to him, grant us that we might sit one on your right hand, one on your left, and your glory. Now, they're making their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is making it clear what his fate looks like. 
these guys have a different picture in mind. They're wanting Jesus to lead a revolution, to kick out the tyrannical Roman occupiers, and that they would make up Jesus' inner circle. And so what's happening is that James and John conclude at this point, it's time to make a political maneuver. It's time to begin jockeying for important cabinet positions. And so they come. And, and they're quite tactful, to be very honest with you. Their timing's impeccable. I watched for the first time Survivor this year, which was great because Cochran's like the man. But Cochran says this about Survivor, that Survivor is all about not what move you make, but the timing of the move you make. The timing has to be right. And they're, I mean, this is the right time. Jesus is looking. The time is running short. They approach, can we be on the right and on the left? Can we be your treasury secretary? Maybe I can be the VP, right? And so they make their move. The timing is right. But Matthew includes another detail <laughs> that gives us a little more insight. Because to really drive the point home, they bring in some reinforcements. Mom. You can't make it up. Here they are. Jesus, can we sit on your right and on your left? As a matter of fact, here's mom. And they bring mom right before Jesus. And there's mom saying, yes, please, Jesus. Can my, my, I, they're good boys. They'll really serve you well. Now, there's a, there's a legend. And, and I don't have a lot of solid documentation to, to nail down this legend. But I heard a couple pastors that I respect mention this about the mother of James and John, which might give us a little more insight. We know that her name is Salome. But there's enough evidence, at least to validate the, the thought, that Salome was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Which means that James and John are cousins of Jesus and also cousins of John the Baptist. That means that they bring in Jesus' aunt. It's like, listen, we really should keep this in the family, Jesus. Like, we know that nepotism's not a great thing, but you're gonna really need some guys you can trust here. And it, James and John, these, these guys, they're, they're blood, right? That there's this element that they're family. I can hear them saying, you can trust us, Jesus. But Jesus says to them, you do not know what you ask. I wish there was a way that we could get tone, right? Like, I would love to know the tone behind how Jesus is saying this. Whether it's kind of with a laugh, you don't know what you're asking. Or whether it's with a sternness, you have no idea. Or with this maybe pity or empathy, guys, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able, and then he poses a question, to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Now admittedly, this is one of the more complicated passages of Scripture in the entire Gospel of Mark. And we're going to kind of approach this twofold. First, what do we know 
Jesus is uttering a prophecy about James and John. He's saying that they will indeed experience two things. And the first thing, Jesus says, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. Now, there are two ways you can read this word cup in the Greek. Literally, it's a cup that you can drink out of. But metaphorically, it can also be used as symbolic. Basically, describing an experience that God presents one to drink. So you have a literal view, which doesn't make sense in context, or a more metaphorical view that it's an experience God's giving by which you have to partake. Now, in Mark chapter 14, I think the answer here on how we should read this is provided. Because as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he will use the same word again. He will say, take this cup, he'll pray, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. It seems pretty likely, with fair confidence, that Jesus was predicting, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. He was predicting that James and John, prophesying, that James and John would share in a similar rejection and a similar suffering that he was about to endure. And we know that the prophecy of this is fulfilled. James is not the guy who wrote the book of James, the epistle James. That was Jesus' half-brother. James was the first apostle to be executed, to die, to be martyred for his faith. He was the first to go down, run through by the sword of King Agrippa. John, his brother, was the last to die. And though John died of natural causes... He suffered and was rejected. As a matter of fact, he, there was an execution attempt on his life. They tried to boil him in oil. Kind of a twisted way to kill somebody. Like they tried to deep fry the brother. And he didn't deep fry. And so freaked out by it, they then sent him to an island death camp known as Patmos, of which he survived that as well. John indeed suffered tremendously, so did James. And they indeed drank the cup that Jesus was about to drink there in Jerusalem, that they suffered for Jesus. But then you get to the other half of what Jesus is prophesying here. The cup, okay, that's suffering, rejection, got that. But then Jesus says, with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. Huh? Like, you're kind of like scratching your head over this one. Literally, in the Greek, baptism, I am baptized, is translated the immersion that I am immersed in, which doesn't simplify it, does it? So what is Jesus referring to? And there are three theories, really. First, that Jesus is still speaking of his suffering. Theory number one. That Jesus is kind of reiterating the first point using the illustration of the cup, just using a different illustration, being immersed in suffering. And so Jesus is basically through this verse saying, you're going to suffer, you're going to be rejected like I am. Can you drink that cup, right? So that's theory one. Theory two is that Jesus was speaking of his death and burial, that the idea of being immersed, of being like, like his death, his burial, his resurrection, that they would also partake in that. It's a theory, the problem I have with this is that it's, it is future tense. It's future. And my feeling is that Jesus is actually not referring to his suffering 
And he's not referring to his death or burial, but rather he's referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain. Jesus asks, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, suffering, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? When Jesus asked this question, how do they respond? They responded, we are able. Now this word, are able, is the Greek word, and we're going to put it on the screen, dynamia. It literally means power from one's own ability. Basically, Jesus is saying, Can, are, are you going to suffer as I am suffer, suffering? Are you going to be able to endure the rejection as I am going to be rejected? Are you able to really follow me along the journey, along the path that I'm going to lead? And they're like, Jesus, we are able. Literally, we can. We can do it. I mean, that's how they're saying it. And our power and our ability and our strength and our tenacity, we can, do, we can follow you, Jesus. But the baptism of which we're baptized, it's future tense. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the disciples to go to Jerusalem to wait for that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon you. Jesus is like, before you go and represent me, <laughs> before you go and minister in my name, go and wait for power, for ability, for strength. And this word power, it's very, very close to dynamia, but it's a little different. It's the word dynamis. And the word dynamis means power that exceeds one's ability. And then we find this preposition, upon, or epi, to overcome, to overflow. The event that we talk about where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, you know, isn't it interesting? Because they're immersed in the Holy Spirit. They're immersed in an immersion that overflows from an overflowing, right? Almost like a, being baptized with a baptism that I am baptized in. We refer to it as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, an immersion where I am so covered and so full, it's so overflowing, I am dripping with the Holy Spirit, not of my own power, dynamia, but of a supernatural power. It's as though Jesus is saying, are you able with this cup? And they're like, we can. And then Jesus is like, well, okay, you will, but there will also be power. I'll provide you the ability to do it. I believe that Jesus is saying here that these men would not only suffer as he was about to suffer, but that they would be also baptized with the necessary power to endure and to persevere and to effectively represent him. They thought they were able to fulfill the mission that Jesus was leading them on, that he had laid before them. But Jesus knew that they would need the power of the Holy Spirit because on their own strength and their own ability, what would they do in Jerusalem? They would deny him and betray him and run. They were not able, but they would be with the Holy Spirit. Another thought that will lead to a B-side. But think about this. If you go back and you read this section in context to this, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, right, that they're going to receive what he's presently in the midst of, right? The suffering and what? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill his mission, 
the Son of God needing the power of the Holy Spirit, then how much do we need him? We need the Holy Spirit if we're to fulfill anything. Now, Jesus also makes an interesting statement following on the, the, the really getting to the essence of what they were asking because they wanted to know, hey, can we sit on your right? Can we sit on your left? Jesus goes through this whole thing. They're like, we can. He goes through this whole thing. And then he, and then he says, he says, but getting to your question, to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. I understand the point maybe in an overarching sense of what Jesus is saying. Jesus encouraging these two knuckleheads not to worry about position in the kingdom, not to worry about where they would sit, but just worry about being obedient, brothers. Just worry about being faithful, being obedient to the king. Let the king handle what your position might be within the kingdom. And so I get the overarching sense of what Jesus is saying, but I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea what the particulars mean. I cannot break this down in any kind of coherent explanation. What Jesus means by it's not mine to give and for whom it is prepared, no clue. And as your pastor, I'll just tell you that up front. No clue. And if you find someone that really does know, they're lying to you. And if you know, please tell me. Like if you run across some great explanation for this, because I can go back and forth. As a matter of fact, I love how Eugene Peterson, who paraphrases this verse in the message, he says, but as to awarding places to, to, of honor, that's not my business. There are other arrangements for that. <laughs> and like, I feel that way. Like, I have no idea what this means. I'd like to be on the right or the left. Jesus isn't giving it. It's ordained, prepared. I don't know. If you know, let me know. Verse 41. So the 10 heard it. And they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. <laughs> well, why were they upset with James and John? I could see them watching this whole scene unfold, and they're like, rats, I should have thought of that. They brought in mom. That was brilliant. I can't believe those guys did that. Like, they're really irritated that they didn't think of this, that these guys made the move. But Jesus called them to himself. And he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be among you. Whoever desires to become great shall be your servant. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this is not the first time we've seen this particular dialogue. If you've been with us for any length of time, this has been a continual theme that's being reiterated over and over and over again. It's actually ironic that when Jesus talks about predicting his death and resurrection, the disciples respond to that by arguing over greatness, <laughs> of which their Jesus then has to respond by explaining what real greatness is because ultimately the kingdom of God. It's a reverse pyramid to the traditional way in which the world evaluates a person's power or a person's influence. And to illustrate this, Jesus sets up the whole thing through a comparison and a contrast. Look at it. He says, you know, how does the world measure greatness? That's what he's saying. The Gentiles, they lord it over. How does the world measure greatness? By how many people serve you? He says, 
you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority. But how will the kingdom measure greatness? If the world measures greatness by how many people serve you, the kingdom, it flips it. How does the kingdom measure greatness? Not by how many people serve you, but rather by how many people you serve. It's no longer how many people you're over. It's now how many people you're under. How many people you get to serve. How many people you get to minister to. How many people you get to love on. It's awesome. And ultimately, the greatest example of this is Jesus. Jesus makes this point. He says, for even the Son of Man, the top down, did not come to be served but to serve. And how did Jesus serve us in the most ultimate way? He answers it. To give his life as a ransom for many. You know, if you're looking for a theme verse for actions speak louder, or a theme verse really even for the gospel of Mark, look no further than for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You know, we learn so much about the kingdom by the king. And we learn a lot about Jesus, not by the words that came out of his mouth, but by how he lived, how he cared for others, how he was loving and patient and kind. That Jesus was ultimately the servant of all. And Mark is writing to whom? He's writing to the slave population of Rome. This letter is to be circulated. This story is to be circulated down in the kitchen halls or out in the fields of this man who was great, but he was great because he was a servant. And how this message would rattle within the hearts of the people hearing it, but how it should rattle within our hearts. Those that are truly great are not those who lord over others, but who have an attitude of servanthood, who serve. You can learn a lot by how a person approaches this very concept, by the reaction you get when they're treated like a servant. You know, people that are often prideful and have an exalted expectation and perspective of self, when they're treated like a servant, they get real bent out of shape over it. They do. But a person who has the mentality of a servant who is a slave of all, when they're treated like a servant or a slave, it's just consistent, man. It's just who I am. You see, if you're treated like a servant and you just roll with it and you accept it, like this is what I'm, even if it's persecution or frustrating or difficult, like Jesus would give his life as a, the ultimate example we have of servanthood was a guy who died for everyone. And like, you're just bummed out that your neighbor's a jerk suffering for Jesus, man. Got to serve that guy and he's a jerk. No. You see, you can evaluate your own self. How do you react when someone at church says, hey, can you take the garbage out? How dare you ask me to take out the garbage? Okay. Well, then we'll look for someone who really is acting like Jesus. Do you serve the kids? Do you serve your spouse? 
your coworkers, that annoying boss. If we're following Jesus and Jesus is leading us on a trail up to Jerusalem and we're following, understand where that leads us, where it leads you. It leads you to a cross where you die, where you're no longer your own, where your life and your goals and your dreams are no longer your own that your money is no longer your own, your possessions are no longer your own, your family is no longer your own, it's been given to you by, by Jesus so that you can serve them by being a servant, by being a slave. Jesus is speaking, yes, of action, but he's speaking more to what? The heart, isn't he? He gave his life as a ransom for many. The greatest demonstration of greatness. We can say in all honesty that if we were to take, to take a poll of the greatest people who ever lived, whether you're a Christian or not, you know who's at the top of the list? The most influential people of all time. Jesus. It's true. Whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, a Christian, a, a, a Hindu, a, a Muslim, it doesn't matter. Jesus will be at the top of the list because some 2,000 plus years after the fact, there are millions and millions and millions of people who will die for him, who have laid down their lives to follow him. Jesus is the most influential person to have ever lived. He changed the world. That's a truth. Jesus is great. But how or what was the greatest demonstration? What made him great? That he overthrew an army? That he led a rebellion? That he wrote some crazy document that established rights for humanity? That he picked up styrofoam to save the earth? Like, what made Jesus great? He laid down his life for his friends. Are you willing to do the same? Because if you're following Jesus to Jerusalem, Jesus requires a heart that's a servant.